0: They shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not grow weary; they shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee, be not dismayed, for I am thy God, I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. For we pray, you can go ahead and start getting ready by opening your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to uh, make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we have your word to stabilize us in times of crisis. And as we look around the world, We watch the decisions made by world leaders. We see uh, threats made by various uh, powers whose leaders are relatively unstable, and we uh, could easily become frightened and panicky over the condition of the world. Yet we know that history is under your control, especially as we study the passage that we are in tonight and in the coming weeks. This was written in order to give us a certainty of the future, and how things would unfold, and that therefore we understand that the threats that appear to be so real and scary for so many people today are not that way at all. We know that the uh, times are in your hands, and so we can relax as believers, we can be a testimony to the angels and to unbelievers around us, and we pray that we might use this opportunity to effectively communicate the truth of the gospel and the truth of your word to those around us. And we pray that they would be willing to listen. Father we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We've come to a key passage in Revelation 13 on the two beasts. The first beast is the Antichrist. The second beast is the false prophet. And in Revelation 13.1 John writes that he stood on the sand of the sea. And he the sea represents the uh, masses of Gentile nations that are uh, turbulent, chaotic, seeking to uh, control Earth's destiny. And out of the sea comes this beast, and the beast is depicted as having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his head were blasphemous names, and as you go on and read the chapter, you see that this beast has characteristics of a lion, a bear, a, a leopard, and it's, the beast itself has these ten horns. Now, the imagery, as I have pointed out the last couple of weeks, comes right out of Daniel chapter 7, and so to understand what is being said in Revelation 13... Plus, what is being said across the board in the Scripture about this person known as the Antichrist? We have to go back and take, to pick our way through Daniel seven, Daniel eight, Daniel eleven, First uh, Thessalonians, chap, I mean Second Thessalonians chapter two, as well as a couple of other odd verses here or there, to come to understand the characteristics of the Antichrist. As I pointed out last time. The apostle John writes in 1st John that there are many antichrists in the world. And so we see, as it were, foreshadowings of the antichrist in every generation. And one nation, one empire after another is going to manifest these characteristics. It's also important to go through this because in studying Daniel, Uh, Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, we get a perspective of world history that you don't get anywhere else other than from the Bible because the Bible gives us that uh, divine viewpoint perspective, gives us God's view on the panorama of history and why what has happened in the past is important for understanding what is going to happen in the future, and we see that there's a continuity between the past and the future. And this comes out very clearly in the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream that is described and interpreted in Daniel chapter 2. This is a great image that had the head of gold, the chest of silver, the uh, waist torso of uh, bronze and then the uh, uh, legs of iron representing uh, Babylon, medieval persia Greece, Rome, and then the future revived Roman Empire. This is great to understand, this flow of history. And one thing that we should note, that it, two things are depicted in the statue. One thing I pointed out, one thing I didn't. The one thing I pointed out was it's from the human perspective that These kingdoms are are viewed as being valuable, as being made of uh, these important metals. It has an attractiveness to it that appeals to men. In contrast, we look at the uh, image of the kingdoms of man in the uh, Daniel chapter 7, and they're pictured as being uh, bestial. And so these kingdoms are viewed from the perspective of God. They are uh they're they're depicted by these man eating uh animals that destroy humanity, even though they talk a lot about valuing mankind and doing all that they can for the people and providing health care for everybody and you know, no child left behind and all the other slogans that we hear from the kingdoms of man, uh they ultimately destroy humanity. They are All kingdoms tend to be uh, hostile to true liberty and true freedom. But the other thing that we should note from the, looking at the image of Daniel chapter 2 is that the kingdoms of man are represented as one image. One image. That's because there is a continuity that uh, extends throughout the kingdoms of man. They all are just different manifestations of that same kingdom of man that sought to establish itself back in uh, Genesis chapter uh, 11 with the Tower of Babel, man setting himself up uh, over against the um, uh, kingdom of God. And so the Bible always presents this contrast And this conflict between the kingdoms of man and the kingdoms of God. And if you look at Daniel 244, you don't need to turn there, but if you look at Daniel 244, it is at the end of Daniel's interpretation of that image. And he writes, in the days of these kings, when's that time period? That is in the future. Because what the verse will describe is that God's kingdom will destroy this kingdom. And it says, in the days of those kings, and it is speaking of the, the, the collection of the kings represented by that statue, showing that from God's perspective, characteristics and elements of each of these empires contribute to the, the future kingdom of the Antichrist. And there are these elements that will all come together. And so from God's perspective, when the kingdom of man is destroyed, uh, all these kingdoms then become destroyed. The same kind of thing is said in Daniel chapter 7. And so Daniel 2.44 says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces. And consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever and in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, there is a rock that is, a stone that is cut without hands that comes out of the side of a mountain and crushes the kingdom of man uh, instantly and that is how the kingdom of man will end and we studied that with the, our look at the uh, Battle of Armageddon God is Jesus Christ is going to come back, and he is going to destroy the kingdom of man in its final form as uh, as, as Babylon, rebuilt Babylon in Re- Revelation uh, 17 and 18 as it's described there. And so it's important as we go through these chapters in Daniel, we're also building a frame of reference for understanding Revelation 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. All of that uh, is, is just, just ties together the things that are taught here in these particular chapters. And so I pointed out last time the parallels between Daniel 2 and 7, that the head of gold represents Babylon, the chest of silver, the meat of Persian Empire. Uh, the brass represents Greece. The iron represents uh, Rome in its first stage up to 476 A.D. And then the iron and clay represent new elements that are added to the old elements of iron, and that is the revived Roman Empire or Rome two. And there's this gap, as you see it's depicted there in the chart above, there is a gap that occurs, a gap of darkness between the first stage of Rome and the second stage of Rome. And what's interesting is read this, look at this as if you were a Jew living in the first century and you see that there is a history of gentile kingdoms that basically goes up to the kingdom that is in power at the time the first I mean the second temple is destroyed in AD 70 and the kingdom that's in power then is the kingdom of Rome so you see the 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 end of the kingdom of Rome but this this darkness that occurs this this blank spot between the first stage of the roman empire and the second stage of the roman empire parallels the the, the parenthesis of the church age because rome one doesn't get destroyed like the other empires do that many of the elements of the uh, of the roman empire organization uh, law uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of different ideas about property. These things continue to be a part of the way Western Europeans think, the language. Uh, Latin is the basis for many European languages and continues to be manifested in, in European languages. And there are many uh, scholars who have traced out uh, so many of the details of of ancient Rome. In fact, in the seventeen uh, hundreds in the in the colonies in in what is now the United States that the Roman Republic was the ideal, and so the founders were schooled in the the philosophy and the thinking of the Roman Republic as the ideal form of government it wasn't until you turned the century into the early eighteen hundreds that they uh, shifted to focus on on Greece and the value of democracy as opposed to a, a republic. So the thinking that informed the legal system of the United States comes out of the influence of Rome. So all through this period, there, it's like Rome just sort of dissolves into Western civilization And it becomes rather uh, ephemeral and we lose sight of it. But its influence is there until you come to the end of the church age uh, or just after the rapture. And then it's suddenly going to take shape again in its final form for its uh, ultimate defeat. And so the Rome that destroys the temple in A.D. 70 is the Rome that's going to desecrate the temple in uh, the tribulation period, and the leader of the revived Roman Empire is the one who is going to be uh, destroyed by Jesus Christ when he returns. So we see how all of this uh, fits together. Last time we looked at the introduction to the beasts, the four great beasts coming out of the water in uh, Daniel chapter 7. And that they're identified by the interpreting angel in verse 17 as these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings, which will arise from the earth. Now, if you've got your Bible in front of you and you're looking at Daniel chapter 7, I want you to skip down to verse 24. Uh, uh, let's look at 23. 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom. See, now, what does it say in verse 17? These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings. One king, two kings, three kings, fourth king, right? I'm keying in on, I'm keying in on the word king. But in verse 23, the fourth beast is not called the fourth king. It's called the fourth Kingdom, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and then verse twenty-four says the ten horns are ten kings which shall arise from this kingdom, and another will rise after them and shall subdue, subdue three of the kings. The point I'm making is that kings and kingdoms are used interchangeably. That's a very important piece of data when you when you're doing exegesis, especially when we get to the section in Revelation 13 dealing with the, uh, the, the head wound of the Antichrist. I mean, there's just unusual things that are, people are doing some strange things today with some of this. And so I just want to point that out that they'll say, okay, it's a king or it's a kingdom. And if they interpret the head as a kingdom as opposed to a king then the head wound is not interpreted to be a personal fatal wound, but it's interpreted to be the the death of a nation or kingdom and the resurrection of a kingdom. And that's one of the things that is part of this view called the Assyrian Antichrist because they're arguing that there is going to be a resurrection of the Assyrian kingdom that will be part of the revived Roman Empire and that the Antichrist will come out of this area that was part of the ancient Assyrian, uh, Assyrian kingdom. And I'm, the reason I'm touching on that and working through this is this view has become more and more popular. Uh, and, you, well, you hear more of it over the last ten years or so, especially since 9-11, because we all have a tendency to interpret the scriptures in light of current events. And since Islam is the big bad boogeyman right now, and there's this tendency, especially when you have these former terrorists like, uh, Walid Shubat and, uh, several others, I, I can't think of all their names, but they tend to interpret all of this from that, their background in Islam. So, I've got a lot of questions on that, so we have to address it, and it's a, uh, become a more significant issue. So we'll just pick up ideas on this as we go through here. Well, we saw that the first beast was the uh, lion with wings. It's a uh, uh, ravenous animal. The lion is a ravenous uh, animal, has these uh, wings like uh, of an eagle. The eagle is a bird that is a, a predator, eats uh, uh, flesh, eats uh, carrion, and so there's the picture there of uh, of this beast that is voracious and that is destructive of flesh and uh, as I pointed out last time, the interpretation that the wings are plucked, in other words, it loses power it 's lifted up from the ground, made to stand on two feet like a man. This refers to the period of time when Nebuchadnezzar was insane and was and spent seven years like an animal living out in the fields until God gave him his mind back. And then after that, he was no longer arrogant, but he learned his lesson of humility. And so the head of gold represents the uh, kingdom of Babylon, as does the winged lion. And uh, this is all depicted by Nebuchadnezzar. And the kingdom was uh, uh, quite impressive, contributed a number of things to history, and not the least of which was architecture. Nebuchadnezzar was known for being uh, quite an architect, and built uh, the gates uh, of the city, gates of ISIS, where there many animals are depicted on the in the brick of the of the gates, and in various other uh, aspects around the city. These are some pictures from the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. I showed these last time, just to give you a a look at how the, these were depicted, the, the lions and, the, and unicorns in somewhat uh, stylized uh, fashion. Here you have a, what looks like a unicorn in the uh, bottom and then a lion above it. It's a little uh, difficult to see that from below. And the lion as a depiction of these kingdoms, a winged lion, was not uncommon. Uh, these are some pictures from the British Museum. Of uh, where you have um, th- these were from the palace of Ashurbanipal, actually in the Assyrian kingdom, but you see the um, uh, the winged lion. It's a little fuzzy up. No, no, the pictures are a little dark, but uh, you can see that. Uh, let me skip ahead on through a couple of these slides. Here we go. This is where I stopped last time, right here. On back up. There we go. Babylonian Empire. This gives you an understanding of how expansive the Babylonian Empire was. Now, one of the things I've learned as a pastor is that a lot of people do not spend a lot of time looking at Bible maps. So I wanted to take a little time to leave this map up so people can look at it and try to orient to these things. Because the maps and geography are very important when you study certain areas of the Bible. A lot of the Old Testament's important to understand those Uh, geospatial relationships, but it's also important to see where these places are today and what countries they're part of today, and that plays a major role in understanding prophecy. And so this is a, a map out of, I think this is a Zondervan map. And, you know, it's a great thing to look at the maps in the back of your Bible, but I've drawn little red boxes around four key areas. Uh, Babylon is on the Euphrates River. It's being rebuilt today. I read an announcement earlier this year that the current leaders in Iraq are continuing the project of trying to rebuild ancient Babylon. Up in the north there you have two uh, ancient cities, Nineveh and Asher, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and God pronounced a judgment on Nineveh. Nineveh was destroyed uh, in the ancient world with the destruction of the Assyrian Empire in about the 7th century. In fact, no evidence of it existed in the 19th century, and as uh, liberal criticism developed uh, questioning all of the history and geography in the Bible, the liberals were... Uh, at a point where they were saying, see, there's no historical evidence of Nineveh. This was a mythological city. It's based on the myth of Jonah. Whoever believed a man could be swallowed by a uh, whale? It wasn't a whale. It was a large fish. And so Nineveh was, was questioned. And then in the late 1850s, Nineveh was suddenly discovered by a somewhat amateur archaeologist. That's all you really had at the time uh, uh layered and he uh henry layer discovered the remains of Nineveh and so this demonstrated the historicity of the bible in fact in the ancient name for the mound under which he discovered the remains of of Nineveh the the term which i can't recall is a um uh it is a cognate of the name Jonah so they basically called that mound the Jonah hill All through the centuries, it was still called the Jonah Hill. And who who would have thought that that was just a myth? So Nineveh is in the north. Uh, That is on the north side. The Tigris makes a little squiggle there to the uh, west, where it's kind of running east-west right there. Nineveh is just to the north of the river. And the uh, current city, uh, Iraqi city of Mosul, is on the south side of the river, and we've read a lot about uh, fighting in and around Mosul, and this is just south of the area where the Kurds have their uh, major, um, major area in the north. Then over to the right, I want you to notice I've got Media boxed in, because this was the kingdom of the Medes. As you move down to the south, you see the town of Susa, and then just below that, the Persian Gulf. And the uh, area that we see just where Media is uh, boxed in there, the area off to the right, and just to the south, uh, east of the Persian Gulf there, east and south of the Persian Gulf, that was the area uh, where the Persians dominate. Now we're going to get into the per- Medes and the Persians tonight. And so the Persians developed, the Median Empire was already uh, operational and the Persians came along and conquered uh, the Median Empire before they uh, conquered the Babylonian Empire. So we see that Babylon controlled most of the area that we now have as modern Iraq and Syria, some of Turkey, Lebanon, uh, Israel, even over to Egypt. Now this is a another map where you see um, Babylon shaded in with the the green. The yellow is media. You can see in the lower right-hand corner Persia. But that green area is the area of Babylon. Now watch this carefully because we have just placed the modern boundaries, the modern states on this area we're studying. So you can see that most of the area of the Babylon, Babylonian Empire covered Iraq, very little over in Iran. It was Iraq, Syria, Jordan, uh, Israel, Lebanon, a little bit into turkey in the north and some down into egypt this was the extent of the kingdom of babylon under nebuchadnezzar and it's very much in in the news today now a couple of interesting things were developed by the babylonians that continue remember i pointed out that there's there're going to be innovations in each of these empires that continue into the next empire, and as history goes down the line, each of these continue to play an important role. The Babylonians were the first people to have a standing army and to keep a standing army. Uh, Assyria had not done so, uh, but because, and well, it's not the sole reason, but one of the reasons that the Babylonian Empire eventually had uh, major financial problems was because they were uh, paying for this standing army all the time. And this is one thing that nations and empires haven't learned yet, is that you have to be able to pay for what you do. You can't just run it out on credit. Uh, they didn't learn that. They were the first empire to develop uh, banking and to develop the concept of credit, which got them into a lot of trouble. And between uh, 560 and 539, when the Babylonian Empire collapsed, uh, they had trouble with uh, inflation and they devalued their coinage by introducing uh, less valuable elements to the gold and the silver. And so they introduced those ideas into human history. The Babylonians were al- also contributed to uh, a lot of areas in mathematics, in fact, what we call algebra today, and you may not realize this, but the term algebra, any word with the prefix A-L is a, from an Arabic word. And algebra is an Arabic term, and there are some people who have said that the uh, Muslims in their heyday back in the uh, 8th and 9th century in their golden age developed algebra. No, they didn't. They got it from the Babylonians and it, and the Persians, and it continued the uh, development of uh, math in that area was uh, attributed to the Babylonians, continued to the Persians and the Greeks and on down through that area. And the Muslims just took it over and claimed it as theirs. So the Babylonians were the first people to develop a silver coinage. They had private banking, and they were the first people to develop a system of credit. Now think about what we see when we get into Revelation 17 and 18. Future Babylon during the tribulation period is the economic center of power for the kingdom of the Antichrist. And so we have this this loop being completed, as it were, uh, in history. And in, in the tribulation period, Babylon will be the symbol for economic evil and its use of uh, of money and banking and credit for the ends of the Antichrist. And we see examples of that or foreshadowings of that even today as governments take over uh, different uh, corporations, not just in terms of recent events, but we've seen these trends in the last 150 years or, or more where governments take over the means of production in socialism and communism uh, and that's what we, will take place during the tribulation period. We, we'll see that in Revelation 13 with the, the whole concept of the mark of the beast and that nobody can buy or sell without having the uh, mark of the beast. So the, this is the Babylonian kingdom. That's the winged lion. And then we come to the second kingdom in Daniel 7-5. And this is represented as a lopsided bear. Behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, so it's lopsided, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise and devour uh, much meat. So the command is to devour meat. It's going to increase its boundaries. It's going to expand. This is talking about its conquests. The the fact that it is a bear, bears and lions were the most, two most predatory animals in Israel. David had problems with lions and bears, and when Saul questioned his ability as a as a young man to fight Goliath, David said, well, I've had practice whenever the lion or the bear would attack uh, my father's sheep, then I would go out and grab the lion by the beer, beard and take my staff and kill it. David was a tough 16-year-old. I don't want, won't ask for anybody to raise their hand so he wants to volunteer to grab a lion by its beard. But David did that. He trusted the Lord. So we see here that there's another beast uh, that resembles a bear. It's raised up on one side, and that's to show that there is some sort of imbalance. And the imbalance, as we'll see, is caused by the fact that it's a, it's a merger of two kingdoms the stronger kingdom is Persia, the weaker element are the Medes, but they come together so they're referred to as a Media Persian Empire, and the three ribs represent three major conquests of the Persians in order to establish their uh, hegemony. They conquer first the Median Empire, then the Lydian Empire, and then the Babylonian Empire. So the three ribs represents these three conquests that establish its uh, power, and then it goes out and it devours even more uh, territory. This passage is going to be correlated with Daniel chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, and and verse 20. Now, Daniel 7 is the vision of these four beasts. When you get into Daniel 8, it's going to narrow the focus a little bit, and we're going to see a vision of two animals, a ram and a goat. The ram represents the Media persian empire, and the goat will represent the... Uh, Greek Empire so we're narrowing down the focus in Daniel 8 3 and 4 we read then I lifted my eyes and saw and there standing beside the river was a ram which had uh, two horns and the two horns were high horn represents power in uh, the ancient world so the two horns are high indicating tremendous power and energy but one is higher than the other the horns are lopsided the bear was lopsided same reason the horns one horn is higher representing the persians the other one a little bit lower representing the medes and the we're told the uh, one was higher than the other and the higher one came up last the median empire was established first and then cyrus comes along to develop the uh, persian empire and to begin his conquest of the of the medes and Lydians and Babylonians. In Daniel 8.4 we read, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, westward toward uh, Babylon, westward toward uh, Israel, southward toward Egypt, and north toward the Medes and the Lydians. So uh, it doesn't go eastward. The Bible is very precise here. So that no animal could withstand him. The other beasts weren't powerful enough, the other little beastly human kingdoms. Nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. Now there's a further development of this in the uh, interpretation down in verses 19 uh, through 21 in that chapter. He said, the interpreting angel said, Look, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time, of the indignation for that appointed time the end shall be. Now this indignation is dealing with the indignation that Israel suffers during their Babylonian captivity, the end of that and their uh, restoration because their restoration occurs under the Medes and the Persians. For at the appointed time the end shall be. That's not talking about end time prophecy. That's talking about the end of that first, uh, Fifth cycle of discipline. Daniel 8.20, the kingdom is specified. See, God doesn't leave it up to people to guess as to using some kind of uh, enhanced imagination as to what these kingdoms are. We're told that uh, the ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat, this is the second uh, part of the vision... The male goat is the kingdom of Greece, and the large, large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, and that, as we'll see, is going to be the first king of the Greek Empire was Alexander the Great. So we get we'll get into that I hope tonight before we wrap up. So the two horned ram in chapter eight is the kings of the Medes and the Persians. The three uh, ribs represents the uh, Lydian Empire, the Median Empire, and the Chaldean Empire. So to summarize the symbols that we see, the ram represents the medo Persian Empire. The two horns represent the combination of the Medes and the Persians, according to Daniel 8.20. The higher horn represents the Persians that are stronger and developed later. Uh, The move west, north, and south represents the direction the kingdom expanded uh, as they uh, dominated, as they conquered the other empires. And then the lopsided bear, back in chapter 7, one side represents the means, the other the Persians, and the Persians are higher. And then the three ribs represent the three major conquests of the Persians, over the Midian Lydian and Babylonian Empire. So we see that this the scriptures are quite precise as to as to what is going to happen. Uh, Cyrus conquered the Medes in 550 BC, 11 years before the uh, decline, the destruction of Babylon. He conquered the Lydians uh, in the around 540 545 rather and then he conquered, uh, the Neo-Babylonian or Chaldean Empire in 539. So this is spelled out specifically. Okay, there we go. Here is a map showing the Babylonian Empire. We see where Babylon is, and you see the Median Empire to the north, the Lydian Empire over in what is now uh central turkey in this area and then and the persian empire actually started off the uh, off the map to the right this map gives you a little broader perspective we see uh the extent uh, at its greatest expansion it controlled the area across the bosphorus uh into what is Thrace and Macedonia from where which uh from where Alexander the Great will come they never quite conquered the southern part of Greece they were defeated in 490 in the first invasion under Darius I Histospes when um, uh the uh Greeks had the fast runner to run the first marathon from Marathon to um, uh, Athens and then ten years later, they tried it again under Xerxes, and again they failed, and again they were uh, defeated pretty soundly by the by the Greeks. That was the episode that involved uh, both the Battle of Thermopylae and a, a fantastic naval engagement that occurred in uh, the Gulf of Salamis. But the Persian Empire, as you can see, is the largest empire to date and what was it that uh, the the scripture said you would devour much flesh it it, it expands and captures most territory it goes all the way to the Indus River uh into uh India the Hindu Kush and all the way down to Egypt North Africa all of Turkey and parts of Greece this is one of the um few times in history where we see the sons of Japheth being defeated some by the uh sons of Ham. Now here's another map that where we have the ancient uh ancient boundaries of the Persian empire laid out in yellow and then superimposed on that we have the uh boundaries of the modern states so this is modern Iran, uh Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, Armenia, um, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, and the Sinai, and down into Egypt. So we see that the first two of the beasts represent the first two parts of the of the statue of Daniel two, the the head of gold and the lion's Babylon, and the chest and torso of silver represents the media Persian Empire, the bear with the lopsided bear with the three ribs in his mouth. Now, during the time period when, uh, in the the heyday of the Persian Empire, Persia is going to invade Greece on two different occasions. In 490, Darius I, who was called Darius Estaspis, sends his navy in to uh, Greece, and they are going to land at Marathon, which is not on the map. You can see I looked around for a map of that and didn't find one. Here's Athens here and Marathon was just to the, uh, northeast on the coast and that's where Darius sent his, his navy and, uh, uh, he, was going to, uh, or excuse me, he sent his soldiers in there at Marathon. They're going to execute sort of a feint, and then he's going to bring his navy around with more of his army to the south of uh, of Athens and use the feint at Marathon to draw the Greek army uh, up to Marathon, and then he's going to attack uh, from his navy from the south in order to uh, destroy Athens. But the he didn't count on the fact that the uh that the greeks would send a swift runner back with the word that the attack at marathon was only a feint and because of that that first uh marathon the athenians were able to make a uh, a forced march back from marathon to athens and defend athens against uh against the persians so uh darius withdrew but ten years later, his successor Xerxes is going to try it again, and this time he's going to send his army uh, up the. Um, let me see up the west coast of Turkey. They come in here. Ignore those lines there. I borrowed this map from a map on the Journeys of Paul. Uh, the The Persian army is going to come across uh, Lydia here and head up to the Hellespont here uh, to cross over into. Uh, Europe from Asia, they'll cross here, come up the peninsula here. This is up in this area is where Istanbul is located. They're going to come up this way, cross over through Thrace and uh, Macedonia, conquer those areas, and then they're going to head down from the north. The Greeks received word that they were coming, and they built a fortification across the Isthmus of Corinth, and they were going to hold them there, but they needed to buy some time. So they called for 300 volunteers from the uh, Spartans, and these are the 300 that the movie was made about, the film a few years ago. And they went up to Thermopylae, which was a narrow pass. It's hard to see it today because they've they've broadened it. It's a it's a wide um, four-lane highway now, and so you don't get the sense of what it was like at the time. But they they were able to hold out. It is the the Greek equivalent of the Battle of the Alamo. And they were able to hold out until a Greek trader gave away the secret of a of a back way around, so the Persians finally defeated them. but it did buy them enough time um, by the Greeks enough time to set up their defenses. They had some uh, ships in the Greek navy down near Athens the um, Xerxes sent in his navy into the uh, Gulf of Salamis here, and they were defeated by the As well, they were defeated by the uh, uh, by by the Greeks, and Xerxes, like so many down through the ages, he had lost a third of his of his fleet, and he continued and he blamed his naval commanders, and uh, called in all the survivors and had them executed. Uh, Not too much unlike Stalin in the mid 30s, he blamed his general staff and about a third or half of his officer corps. He had Uh, killed as traitors five years before World War II. So Stalin went into World War II with a uh, very inexperienced officer corps, but they were going to be loyal because they knew what the penalty was. This shows the expansion of the bear as he's gobbling up much territory, but what happens is he just really upset the Greeks. And so when... Uh, Alexander came along and his father was Philip II of Macedon and trained him and when Alexander took over and began to expand the Macedonian Empire down through, uh, captured the, uh, or conquered the other areas of Greece in uh, Achaia and uh, around Athens, then he uh, began to go after the uh, Persians and he did this in a series of uh, lightning battles which he was able to conquer the Persian army in a very rapid manner and this is depicted by our next uh, animal the four headed and four winged leopard Daniel 7 6 we read after this I kept looking and behold another one like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird now it's those four wings that depict uh, b- both the leopard who is a very fast-moving animal, and the wings indicate the speed of the conquest. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, the four heads are going to represent the fourfold division that occurs in the Greek Empire when Alexander dies, and four of his generals split the uh, kingdom, Ptolemy, Became the, uh, took control of Egypt. He is the ancestor of Cleopatra. Cleopatra was not African. She was not black. She was not Asian. She was a Greek. Her whole family were Greeks and they intermarried with Greeks. Then we have, uh, the second key figure is Seleucus, who takes control of North Syria and Turkey. Now, this is a lot of the area that was also part of the Assyrian Empire. Now, let me draw another connection to this view of the Assyrian Antichrist. Now, there are those who say that, that, that uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who we run into in Daniel 8, Antiochus Epiphanes was the... Uh, type of the Antichrist in in Daniel. He is the one who desecrates the temple, uh, has a pig sacrificed on the altar, and is the original uh, abomina- abomination, of desolation, uh, abomination of desolation. I want to get that right. The original abomination of desolation is he desecrates the temple. And so people say, well, look, he controls Syria, and Turkey, so that he's a type of the Antichrist, and the Antichrist is going to be Assyrian. Well, wait a minute. We have the same problem with with um, uh, Seleucus and, and his line that we do with uh, Ptolemy and his line. They're not Assyrian or African or anything else. They're all Greeks, and they married Greeks. They were not intermarrying with the local population. They maintained a strict Greek bloodline. So again we have a European bloodline ruling over the major parts of the of the old Greek empire. Then you had Antigonus, he takes over the western part of the Greek empire, the area of Persia all the way over to the Indus River, and then Lysimachus who takes the eastern part, uh, Thrace, Macedonia and and Greece. So That sets up the division. Now, here is another map, and this map shows the Alexander's route of conquest, and if you follow it, it starts up here. He crosses over the Hellespont, um, comes down to Granicus here, and this is the first major battle with the Persians. And he, this is the first wing, and this is the first two years of the war against the Persians, and the Persians are defeated at two, are going to be defeated at two major battles that are, uh, take place over here in Turkey. The first is here at Granicus, and the second is down here at Isis, which isn't very far from Tarsus, uh, from where the Apostle Paul hailed uh, much later, uh, much later in history. And then there will be a third major battle here Sometimes it's referred to as the Battle of Galgamala, and sometimes Arbella, but it takes place here, and this basically ends the history of the Persian army and at that point, Persia falls to Alexander and then he goes the line the green lines here indicate the lines of conquest, and you see that he goes up into what is modern Afghanistan as well as down into modern Pakistan along the Indus River, and he conquers all of this territory. Uh, for Greece. So this is picked up and described in chapter 8 of Daniel with the ram and the goat. So what I'm trying to do here is sort of teach through both chapters and summarize uh, the prophecies there. And in chapter 8, verse 5, we read, Daniel saying, And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west. This is Alexander the Great. Across the surface of the whole earth, he's not even touching the ground, it's a picture of speed. And the goat had a notable horn uh, between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, that's a media Persian empire. Came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. It's the defeat of the Persian Empire. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. And so this, uh, we go on to read, Therefore the male groat, "...grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up." That's the four heads of the leopard, the division, the fourfold division of the Greek uh, the Greek empire, empire. "...and out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south." Toward the east and toward the glorious land. That's where we start shifting to look to this little horn. The little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes. The little horn represents um, the type of the of the Antichrist. And uh, eventually, and it's some point in here it begins to get uh, you're not sure what's typology and what's prophecy. It grew up to the host of heaven. That is a picture of. Always the term host of heaven is a picture of the angel. So it indicates his enormous arrogance, thinking that he can rule over the angels. And so at this point, I think there's a shift to where there's a parallel to the Antichrist. He came up to the host of heaven, cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Now, see, this parallels what we just read in, Dan- in Revelation chapter 12, where halfway through the tribulation, Satan casts down or throws down or sends uh, a third of the angels uh, to the earth. So there's a there's a parallel there. We've quit talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, and we're now talking about uh, Satan, who's the power uh, behind Antiochus Epiphanes. And he even, verse 11, note, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. So the human leader is exalting himself, he's empowered by Satan, and he's exalting himself to be as great as Satan. And we read... um, and this, this is fulfilled, of course, also in uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 12, because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. This occurred when Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, the, 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 his subjects hated him, and they would sneer at him behind his back, and they called him uh, Epimenes. Uh, Epiphanes means the manifest God. He thought he was God, but Epimenes means the crazy one. So they had a little fun with him. And, uh, of course, they didn't let him know that because it would end their life. But uh, because we read in verse 12, because of the transgression, the army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices that had been restored in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, and he cast truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then Daniel says, I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So that relates to uh, fulfillment, historical fulfillment under uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Then if we look down to verse 21, we see the uh, interpretation of the vision related to the ram. Uh, Verse 20, the ram which you saw having the two horns, that's the kings of Media Persia, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large, large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. And then in verse 22 we read, As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. So none of them were as great as the original uh, Greek power. And then, so we've looked at Babylon, we've looked at Media Persia, we've looked at uh, Greece, the four-headed leopard, four-winged leopard, and then one more slide here to show the extent, Uh, this map shows the extent of Alexander's empire. And it it just, one of the things that has impressed me, I think some people misunderstood some of the things I said at one time, um, about back when we were going into Iraq. I don't know if going into Iraq was the right thing or the wrong thing. I tend to think it might have been the right thing, because it keeps the battle over there, not here uh, we've all heard various analyses on weapons of mass destruction and whether they were taken out and hidden in Syria and all of these other things. But the thing that struck me was that we had a situation where the United States was being drawn with all of its military power into Iran and into Afghanistan because of the attack on 9-11. And when you look at the layout of prophecy and how the events that will unfold in the tribulation period are centered in this area of the world, the fact that we have been drawn into that, I'm not saying that means that the rapture is around the corner, but all of this plays into setting the stage and setting up the the conditions for the rise of these nations uh, during the tribulation period. And so, when you look at this map and we see uh, Afghanistan over here, uh Pakistan down to the south, India off to the side, and we 've got uh, all the things going on there with the uh, mullahs trying to uh, and um, trying to capture uh, some of the areas in Pakistan where the nuclear weapons are stored, and we 've got the problems that continue. ...up in Afghanistan, an area of the world that is extremely rugged, and nobody's ever really conquered uh, that area to the uh, crazy Ahmadinejad in uh, Persia, in Iran, who's trying to get his hands on a nuclear weapon to wipe out Israel, to Iraq in this area where we have uh, United States troops stationed there, to Syria... Which sees itself as a lie to Iran, to the, uh, support of Hezbollah and Hamas by Syria and by, by Iran, all the way over to Egypt. I mean, you just can't read through the prophecies without being aware that we are right in the center of what will be center stage in the tribulation period. Now this map depicts the breakup of the, uh, empire. You have uh, and you have the purple area down here, there we go, the purple area here in Egypt, this is the area of the Ptolemies, and notice in the early stages, the Ptolemies controlled the area of Israel. Then the lighter green here represents the Seleucid Empire going over, they eventually gained more control of, of the area around Babylon, North of that, you had several areas of, uh, of independent states, and then over here you had where originally Lysimachus, but then, Antag um, Antigonus took over and basically uh, correlated or organized things back in Greece. But what happens during this intertestamental period between the time of Alexander, roughly 320, B.C. and the time of the Roman Empire when they conquered Israel in 63 B.C. uh, is you have a tug-of-war occurring between the uh, Seleucids and the Ptolemies, and the second half of that period from roughly uh, 260 on down, the, the Seleucids gained control, and then there's the Maccabean Revolt. And all of that history in the intertestamental period that every, most Christians are pretty fuzzy on and they don't really understand what happens there and the history is found in either Josephus or in the book of the Maccabees, first and second Maccabees. Uh, gives a good historical account. It's part of the Apocrypha. That doesn't mean you don't ever read it. It means it's not part of the Bible, but it's pretty decent history on what took place uh, during the intertestamental period in in Israel and the story of the um, Hasmoneans and all of the things that went on there as Israel tried to reestablish, uh, reestablish herself. At the end of that, we come to the final form of the beast, and Daniel 7, 7, after this, Daniel said, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. Remember the legs of iron in the statue of Nebuchadnezzar? Large iron teeth. It devoured, crushed, and trampled. A picture of power and devastation. It trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it. See, there's this mention of iron teeth. That's a man-made product. There's something here that's that's of human origin. It's not just animal. And what's that all about? So we see the rise of this fourth beast that has really two stages of operation. And so we will come back next time. And we will start working through the fourth beast. This is really the focus of Daniel 7. The rest of it is all about the fourth beast and the destruction of the fourth fourth beast. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that you predict the future. You're in control of the future, whether it's the future related to Israel or future related to our own lives, the destiny of the United States, that our destiny. You are in control, and so we can relax and trust you, knowing that you will watch over us. And no matter what may transpire, it is your will, and we can trust you to always provide for and protect us, even if that means giving our lives uh, for you because of our stand for the gospel. Father, we pray that you would give us encouragement and strength from this study of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.